0: All right, if you haven't already reached for your Bibles, the, the scripture reading should be up on the monitors. it comes from our gospel that we've been looking at lately in Mark chapter six, and I'll be beginning on verse one and reading through verse six, the gospel according to Mark, the word of God. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Amen. The inerrant and infallible holy word of God. All right, a bit of a story for you that tees up our sermon this morning. In 1996, a Filipino fisherman, he was fishing off the coast of the Philippine island of Palawan in his little one-man boat. As his fishing day unfolded, a storm began to loom on the horizon, warning him that he better pack it in for the day and go home. So this poor fisherman, he dove off of his boat and he followed his anchor line through the beautiful turquoise water to the seabed. He wanted to untangle his anchor that had been stuck, but he noticed when he was down at that anchor that it was stuck on a clam, on a giant clam. He wanted to make way, but he had to get rid of the clam first. And so as he was approaching it, he decided that he would take this clam, that somehow he would try to raise it and get it back onto his boat. Its size gave him pause, but he didn't know how to do it, but eventually he worked it up to the surface, and he took it home, and he wanted to prepare it for dinner. It was gonna be his food. As he was making it later that night for his meal, he discovered in it a large and very misshapen and frankly ugly pearl. Literally, this pearl was two feet long, which gives you a sense of the size of the clam. It was heavy, too turned out to be about 75 pounds. The fisherman then considered himself lucky to be alive. He was happy and feeling lucky to be alive because he knew this story some 60 years ago prior to that in 1934 a very similar thing happened in the same waters there of Palawan. A native diver of conch shells he went missing. When his fellow natives searched for him in the area where he had been scavenging for the conch, they found him on the bottom of the seabed with his arm stuck in a giant clam. It clamped down on his arm. The natives tied ropes around the dead man and around the clam, and they brought both up as one single unit to the authorities so that his odd death would be formally determined to be an accident by the authorities. There's a whole lot more to that story, but for the sake of time, I'm going to fast forward from 1934 back up to our poor fisherman of 1996. After having discovered this ugly pearl in his would-be meal, he had felt so lucky that he hadn't died trying to get the clam into his boat that he actually kept this pearl under his bed. Kept it there for a long time. He thought it would bring him good luck. And his routine was such that every day when he went fishing, he would touch it. He thought it would bring him good luck. So that's what he did. But for 10 years later, 10 years, his house burned down. His little dwelling burned down. But the pearl survived. But he didn't think it was worth anything to carry it to his new dwelling, wherever that was going to be. And so he gave it to a relative of his who happened to work in the Office of Tourism. She thought it was odd enough to get looked into. And so she had some experts come and take a look at it. Well, as it turns out, what this poor guy treated merely as a good luck charm, what he literally kept under his bed, was and is still the rarest, the largest, the most valuable pearl ever found in the history of man. It weighed in at over 17,000 carats and it appraised for over $100 million. Now, why that story is an extreme one, or at least it's one of extreme, it's not uncommon, as you probably know, for people to have something, a trinket, maybe a hand-me-down or a painting or a quilt that's been taken for granted over its many years. They get used to seeing it because of its familiarity, perhaps. They no longer appreciate it. Or because, perhaps, of ignorance, they don't recognize it as anything special. Now, if you think you need more proof of this, go watch Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> Three episodes later, you'll agree with me. But when it comes to the most valuable thing in all the universe, actually beyond the universe, the literally the most valuable thing, the kingdom of God, we are told by the king himself just how valuable it is. And we, we don't have to remain ignorant. Right? We don't have to go on a roadshow. We don't have to ask an expert. But despite that information at our fingertips and the verity of its source, right, the the believability, the truthfulness of the source, it often doesn't make a difference in a person's life. Of course, there can be many reasons for this, but I'll try and boil it down to a simple three. The first is perhaps you've heard that the kingdom of God, maybe you've heard it described so very often you don't notice it as something special anymore. Perhaps hearing it at church every Sunday, week after week, year after year, it gets taken for granted. You know about the lost coin turning, uh, going missing, right, and turning the house upside down in a panic and letting nothing rest until you found it. You know about the pearl of great price and the buried treasure and where everything gets, has to get sold in order to possess it. And you can recite John uh, 3.16. You can say the fact that God gave his only begotten son. But for some reason, it no longer gives you a sense of awe. Or second, maybe the kingdom's value is just so incomprehensible to our finite minds or to our lifestyles that dwelling on it becomes meaningless. We can't relate to $100 million. At least I can't. Or the amount of the Washington Football Team's upcoming sale of six billion dollars, or our present national debt of uh, thirty-one trillion dollars—I had to look that up—thirty-one trillion dollars. It's just unfathomable to us. Now, these may be these may be realities, but they're just big numbers, right? They're incomprehensible. Or third. Perhaps the value of the kingdom of God doesn't resonate with you because it's, a, uh, it's foreign to you. You're not a citizen of that kingdom, and you don't know the king. Your land and kingdom are somewhere else. You're a citizen under a different authority, and you live and behave under that authority by different rules. Now, what Jesus does here in Mark 6, in our passage this morning, it's an important lesson for his disciples immediately. But it's also an important lesson for us today as they are about to be dispatched in pairs, right? They're going to go out two by two and they're going to proclaim repentance. And that important lesson has to do with rejection. This is a story of rejection because every time the truth is proclaimed, and in particular, every time God's gospel is proclaimed, there will come a division amongst those who hear it. And Jesus knows that his disciples need to be prepared for this. Some are going to embrace it, and some will reject it. And so even today, we must understand and expect that unbelief is always part of the environment in which the gospel advances. Unbelief is always part of the context in which the church of Jesus Christ grows. Okay. So we have Jesus teaching in the synagogue in his hometown. That would be Nazareth. And in verse 2, we see that the people were amazed or astonished. That could be good amazement. Often is, but it also could be bad amazement. You can be amazed as in incredulous, right? You can be astonished without being impressed. Well, the answer to that question that I just posed to you, is it good or bad amazement? is found in the context. So the audience knew Jesus. This was his neighborhood. It's where he grew up. He was recognized as the carpenter's son who had no formal rabbinical training. His group of disciples was a hodgepodge lot, right? They were without any high credentials. They were not, to, uh, to be sure, they were not an Ivy League group. And so his followers were not anything special. Their astonishment was a, it was a buzz with questions like, where did he come up with all this stuff? From where did he get his wisdom? Right, the Nazarenes, they were having a, a little bit of a difficult time. They were having a, a hard time seeing through the veil of Jesus' ordinariness that they were used to during his upbringing with them. What they saw of him when they played with him as children. And what They knew about this guy that they went to school with as teenagers, perhaps. They knew that Jesus never wrote a book. They knew that he never led an army. They knew that he never held a high office. And they knew that he was just a common blue-collar laborer. They might have said of Jesus and his family, as I hear often today, they're good people, but they're common folk. So nothing about Jesus or his family would position him as extraordinary. And to make it worse, their familiarity with the family of Joseph and Mary would make it harder for them to believe. Jesus acknowledges that very fact in verse 4. When after his teaching, they became offended at him and his teaching. And so he told his disciples, a prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and among his own household. And offended they were. The old Navy adage, right, the U.S. Navy has an adage, it likely applies here, that familiarity breeds contempt, which is a major reason, perhaps it's the major reason, why officers and enlisted personnel are not to frater- fraternize. They're too familiar with one another. Anyway, we can, we can relate Um their amazement, to his authority, right? They were amazed at the things he was claiming. But their offense is to be understood in their not understanding or their disagreement with his identity, right? They were offended at his identity, what he was claiming himself to be. Verse 3, which can be understood, by the way, as disparaging, Isn't this Mary's son? That's what they were saying. Isn't this Mary's son? Even if Joseph had been long dead by now, right, the earthly parent of Jesus, even if he was long dead by now, respectable Hebrew men were always referred to as the son of their father, not the son of their mother. The Hebrew word for son, by the way, is ben. I don't know if you know that, but son means ben. Solomon would be Solomon Ben David. John Ben Zachariah. Here's one for you, those of you who remember the 1959 Charlton Heston movie. Judah Ben Hur. And Jesus would have been known in Nazareth as Jesus Ben Joseph. These men were not Solomon Ben Bathsheba, John Ben Elizabeth, and nor should this rabbi be referred to as Jesus Ben Mary. That's what they were calling him. In verse 3, the people who grew up with Jesus and his family are not so subtly mocking him. Throughout his ministry, and so far documented in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been declaring that the kingdom of God has arrived in him. He then proceeds to overturn the work of the devil. He casts out demons. He stills the wind and the waves, so he shows that he has superiority over nature. He heals lepers, cures blindness and diseases, and he triumphs over death. All pretty dramatic stuff, and certainly convincing if you're sitting there watching it or you're hearing it relayed to you by reliable people. But then he comes back to his hometown, and there he cannot triumph over the disbelief of his own sisters and brothers and neighbors. Remember, from several sermons back, they thought he was nuts, right? Mark three twenty one, he is out of his mind. These people had forgotten their scriptures about Isaiah's prophecy regarding him who comes as the prophet of God. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows yeah, and acquainted with grief. And we hid our faces from him. We esteemed him not. Or as John put it later, he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Essentially, these people of Nazareth are saying, who does this guy think he is? Verse five then tells us that Jesus could not do a big miracle there. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It says, could not. The original Greek, which I looked up and then read, the original Greek text literally literally says, he was not able. Yes, on account of their unbelief, his family and hometown were deprived of his signs and wonders. But Mark is not drawing attention to the limits of Jesus' power. He has no limits to power, he's God Almighty. So Jesus' inability wasn't because of any limitation within his power. Their unbelief, by the way, did not cause impotency, impotency, I'll get that right, in Jesus' power. We're going to talk about that in a second. Instead, the deprivations of miracles and blessings were the result of unbelief. Their rejection of God in the flesh prevented the healing ministry of Jesus being showered upon them. Their unbelief showed them to not only be outside of God's kingdom's rule, but to want nothing to do with it. They had rejected him. This was the lesson that Jesus explained to his disciples as inevitable in verse 11, which is ahead of today's scripture text, but we'll get to it next week. But for now, in verse 11, Jesus presumes that the disciples will experience rejection and then teaches them how to respond to it. Do no works there. Just leave. Shake the dust off your feet, right off your sandals. Do not cast pearls before swine. And that's what Jesus, by the way, is demonstrating right here by teaching it in Mark 6. He's teaching it with his silence. So when Mark says that he could do no big miracles, he's not saying that Jesus wasn't physically able to, rather to perform miracles under disbelief, would have been inconsistent with the purpose of miracles, which was to validate that the kingdom of God had come. So if these people disbelieved the king, then no validation of that kingdom's appropriate. It doesn't make sense. Wherever the kingdom of God is rejected, then it's incongruous, right? It doesn't make sense for the king to bestow the blessings of the kingdom upon them. Non-citizens do not get the benefit of citizenry. This story ends in verse 6 with Jesus' amazement, right, his astonishment, his marveling at their lack of faith. This man Jesus, he's the creator of the universe, So what can astonish a man like that? Well, there are only two times recorded for us in the New Testament where Jesus manifests amazement. They both have to do with faith. In one case, it's found in Luke 7, it's a positive example. Jesus is amazed at the faith of the centurion, right? He told the teacher, "Don't, don't go to my house, don't bother yourself with that, just stay here say the word from afar, and he'll be healed. And that amazed the Lord. He hadn't heard faith like that in all of Israel. And here in Mark 6, Jesus declares a negative amazement. The same, uh, I'm sorry, this time it's a lack of faith. So two times the creator of the universe is amazed, and again, both instances have to do with belief. It's so obvious to Jesus. It's so obvious to the king. And he's amazed at people's lack of belief. Or when early in the ministry, when he's performing a miracle or two, somebody actually extends those miracles to demonstrate faith beyond that which would, what Jesus had taught so far. Now, I'm not quite at the end, but I, this is really the beginning of the ending here. I want to close this morning's sermon by camping out a little bit more on this idea espoused in verse 5. We know that Jesus' is teaching in the synagogue it stunned the listeners. People were shocked that this man, that they had known since childhood, had the audacity to say the things that he was saying, as if he really had authority and credentials and identity. They didn't think he did, and so it was offensive to them. And their reaction Right, their rejection, it impacted Christ's work outside of the synagogue. Again, verses 5 and 6. He could, do no, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. It's a little jarring, I think, to read that. Jesus was unable to perform miracles that day. I want us to be clear, however, what's really happening here. On face value, it sounds like as if the people's lack of faith was sort of his kryptonite, right? It somehow weakened him or it robbed him of his power. The incident reads like a sad footnote, perhaps, to a, a long day gone wrong where Christ couldn't do, somehow he couldn't do what he really wanted to do or what, what, what perhaps might seem even better. And so you might be tempted to th- To see this as a cautionary tale against the dangers of unbelief, it's more than that. Granted, faith is essential to the Christian life. Hebrews eleven six tells us that, and without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Hebrews eleven six, faith is necessary to please God. But there's more to this story. There's so much more to it than just a warning about what happens when faith is lacking. If there wasn't, then the people's unbelief, right? The people of Nazareth or us replaces Christ as the main character of the story, right? It replaces Christ as the main theme. In the play Peter Pan, there's a moment where the audience members have to clap their hands. If they believe in fairies, right? They do this so that Tinkerbell will live. Her very existence Tinkerbell's very existence hinges on the people's volume of applause. Now, a less than good interpretation of that passage, it might tell us that we should adopt a similar attitude towards Jesus, making his strength dependent somehow on the strength of our faith. Under that thinking, we would become preoccupied with the sufficiency of our own belief. It might consume us like it did Martin Luther for many years. We would agonize over the question, do I have enough faith to make miracles happen or to have prayers answered? That wrong thinking puts Christ at the mercy of our commitment to him. And our unease absolutely increases as we step up the pressure to generate our own adequacy, which we can never do. And so goes the path of the legalist. The type of Christian who says that if I put a quarter into a vending machine and pull the knob, God's going to give me a candy bar. If I behave this way, I'll get that. But Edgemont, good news for us. Jesus is not Tinkerbell. Okay? This view promotes a subtle and dangerous conclusion. And it's a wrong conclusion that goes something like this. Our faith is not so much in God. As it is in the amount of belief we have conjured up to control him, we mustn't forget that in the very first verse of his gospel, Mark makes it clear that he's writing only one theme. It's a singular theme: Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Right, that's Mark 1:1. 1, 1. Every line thereafter supports his contention that Jesus is the Messiah. And the author there, Mark, he says he stays singularly on that topic throughout his entire book, throughout the entire gospel. And that includes our Mark six, 6 passage this morning. Despite appearances, these verses are not primarily about followers and miracles. They're not. They're about God. They're about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, when Mark says Jesus could not perform any mighty works there. He's not suggesting that the Lord was incapacitated in any way. Mark's could not is out of principle. It's a could not of principle, not of power. Working miracles in the absence of faith was impossible because it would have been directly contradicting God's will, the Father's will. Christ's message would have been contradicted. In the face of the Nazarene skepticism, and outright hostility. Jesus chose not to do miracles. Now, if this was happening to you or me, maybe we'd take a different path. We might be tempted to go on the opposite direction, to convince or to want approval and acceptance. We might have thought, here's an opportunity to, to win these people over. I must give them what they want. They don't believe me now, but if I do something really impressive, they'll they'll be convinced. They'll know. They'll believe that I'm really the son of God. I'll show them. Well, let's praise God that Christ does not share that level of insecurity. People are always asking him for a sign, some evidence of his claims. It took tremendous inner strength not to act in an effort to prove himself at the whims of people. That strength came from being firmly grounded in the love and in the delight of his heavenly father. That's Mark 111. The Father's was the only assessment that counted. And he was thoroughly pleased with his son. That unshakable love for the Father was the foundation that freed Christ from the compulsion to scramble around for popular approval. He could stay focused on a singular mission without getting caught up in the trap of trying to satisfy everyone's expectations. He came to save, not to sell. Christ's willingness to suffer, the misunderstandings and the rejection of his own people, it's not just some unfortunate byproduct of a day that should somehow have gone differently. His inactivity, okay, his silence It revealed his character in a manner that far exceeded the validation he could offer through a miraculous display. Here's the Son of God suffering injustice, bearing iniquity without defending himself. Here's the Lord of heaven. He's willingly embracing rejection. And here in Nazareth, we can catch a glimpse a little bit of the Isaiah 53 lamb that stood silent before its shearers. I think you'll agree with me. If there's any place that you want to shine brightly and make a good impression, it's before your family, friends, and neighbors. right? To show them what you're made of and that you've made good. You want your best game to be in front of the home crowd. I want you to see that the temptation to be impressive in his hometown, it foreshadowed the temptation Christ faced Christ faced during the trial of his crucifixion. From Pilate to the priests to the disciples, every one of them assumed that the best thing for Jesus was to just help himself by not being crucified. He could have smitten his oppressors. He could have been rescued from the cross by an army of angels. That seemed like the obvious choice for anybody with the power at their disposal, which Jesus claimed to have. The religious leaders, they looked at him hanging on the cross, and they verbalized it to him directly. Maybe mocking, but certainly it was the truth. They, They thought, let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. It's Mark 15, verse 32. Yet, if he had listened to their logic and use their criteria for attempting to prove himself, miraculously getting down from the cross, he would have undermined the very core of his mission, and he would have instead disproved himself by not doing the Father's will. The true demonstration of Christ's power was the opposite of what everyone wanted him to do. In our text this morning, he showed his strength by doing nothing, And on the cross, he did the same thing by staying right there on it. It was his death, not a remarkable escape that caused the centurion to say, surely this man was the son of God. In the absence of miracles, a greater wonder emerges. A savior who transforms you. He stays with you through your suffering instead of Bending to our demands for proof of his power and identity, he responds to us in far more loving and redemptive ways. We, certainly I, we tend to look for big faith, things that we look for the wine making Jesus or the disease curing God or the water walking Jesus, and to live like everything is possible for the one who believes. But it's good to know that Christ's hands aren't tied by our disbelief. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, he says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He is present in the silence of non-answers. He's true to himself, regardless of your and my fluctuating trust. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, every magnificent blessing that you grace us with is a gift worthy of celebration. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and trust that even inaction of Jesus, maybe especially his inaction, it reflects his love for us. For if we got everything, Lord, that we wanted, everything that we prayed for, there's no doubt we'd be spoiled children desiring to be our own God. We'd make terrible gods. We'd ruin ourselves. We give all glory to you. That's Christ's acceptance of the grave, his willingness to drink the full cup of the Father's wrath on our behalf, God, your wrath, and his placing the Father's will perfectly above his own. He offers us eternal life, eternity, infinity. That's a number that we can't comprehend a trillion years of life, God, a trillion times a trillion. And that doesn't even scratch the surface. We thank you. And we praise you for your perfect care over us. In Jesus' name, amen.